0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They are trying to change the course of history, but they're running out of time. The Hamilton electors hope to stop Donald Trump from becoming president through the Electoral College. Several of these electors are here in Colorado, and they'd normally cast their ballots for Hillary Clinton since she won the state. Instead, they want to throw their support behind a Republican alternative to Trump. Their effort took a hit in court Monday. A judge's ruling means they must follow state law and vote for Clinton. Michael Baca of Denver is a Hamilton elector and one of the national leaders of the effort to keep Trump from winning the Electoral College. And outgoing state Senator Raleigh Heath is also a member of the Electoral College, but he does not consider himself a Hamilton elector. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. And Michael, state law says each political party must choose members of the Electoral College. Because Clinton won in Colorado, the Republicans sit this one out here and the nine Democratic electors vote. And by state law, they must vote for Clinton. As we mentioned, two Colorado electors sued to overturn that in hopes they could vote for a compromise Republican candidate. You supported that lawsuit. The judge ruled against you. What happens next, Michael?
1: Well, one thing I want to note is that there are private parties selected us as private people, uh, we were voted on by the people, of, or I was voted on by the people of Congressional District 1. And so I believe in my interpretation of the 12th Amendment, and when I'm performing my role uh, as a member of the Electoral College, I'm selecting a president that's to represent all people in this, in this state. And I believe um, by compromising around a responsible Republican, That provides a better deal for my constituents of Congressional District 1.
0: Okay. You may believe that, but the law says otherwise. So how do you proceed, given the judge's ruling?
1: Uh, I I will be voting for a Republican for President of the United States of America.
0: Okay. It's a misdemeanor. Are you willing to break the law to do so? Uh, I I believe it's a small law, but yes, I, I am willing to break that law. That assumes that you remain seated as an elector. The Colorado Secretary of State is seeking clarity in court today to see whether he has the power to remove you or whether the party does. What is your understanding about that? Well, I've been very
1: clear since November 9th, um, since founding this movement or co-founding this movement and uh, proceeding forward. And so it's it's been no secret. And yet the Secretary of State still confirmed me um, just last week to be, in, uh, be a presidential elector. And they, they had the information out in public. So I, I do fully intend to be able to act and cast
0: my ballot for president and vice president of the United States. The secretary of state who has called this an arrogant attempt by two faithless electors to elevate their personal desires over the entire will of the people of Colorado and the judge yesterday calling this a political stunt. What do you think?
1: I think that we're being faithful to the Constitution. I believe that we are acting in the best interest of Americans to prevent a demagogue uh, from taking office.
0: You believe that Trump is a demagogue. What makes you say that?
1: Uh, The fact that he uh, doesn't want to listen to the media, he he disregards the media, he is disregarding Central Intelligence Agency, Um, when he sends a tweet and his followers go after people, um, I I think that uh, presents a danger. Um, When you have Russian influence in our election and he continually denies that information – um, I believe at the very least, we need to have all information available to us. Will you appeal
0: yesterday's ruling?
1: Um, I have yet to speak with—I wasn't, wasn't a plaintiff on that lawsuit, That's so I right. don't want to speak for uh, Mr. Wasoki,
0: but I, I, I would hope that he uh, does appeal it, yes. All right. Let me say that uh, the parties, the two electors who are in that suit are Robert Nemanic of Colorado Springs and longtime Democratic activist uh, from Denver, Polly Baca, who's not related to you. Uh, But you're certainly sympathetic to the suit. Explain why you're called Hamilton Electors, will you?
1: Uh, So we we take a lot of the uh, information from the Federalist sixty eight and describing Federalist papers, Federalist Federalist papers that Hamilton wrote, um, or in part wrote. And we we, uh, initially we were called the Moral Electors, but uh, we rebranded and went to the Hamilton Electors to be a little more direct because this is about the founding fathers, and we believe that we are a, a safety net to prevent someone uh, dangerously unfit from taking office.
0: Is this a quixotic adventure, given how little time there is? Monday is when these uh, electors, including yourself, have to cast their ballots. And given the fact that you would presumably have to replicate this in many states, uh, this strikes me as an uphill battle. What do you say?
1: Of of course it's an uphill battle. We're doing something that has never been done. Um, But signing the Constitution of the United States had never been done. Sending, putting a man on the moon had never been done. Just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean it's not possible. And I believe through a message of unification and Americans putting their country above their party that this is it's quite possible. Six days is a lot of time.
0: Michael Buck, I have a lot more to ask you, but I want to bring in Raleigh Heath, who is not a Hamilton elector. Raleigh, you're scheduled to cast your electoral vote Monday. And whom will you vote for?
2: Well, Good morning Ryan. Thanks for having me sure um well, certainly barring um, some unforeseen instances and let me just say i 'm highly sympathetic to what michael 's doing i'm I'm as concerned as as he is about a Trump presidency and all of the factors that he uh, listed i it certainly concern me and um, my emails have been lit up both from the standpoint of me being an elector and and also being a state senator, so getting huh. a lot of a lot of uh, pushback from 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 people. Um, I'm going to be voting for Hillary as it stands right now. Um, you know the system. Uh, I view. I got elected as the state assembly, um, and we ran not as I ran not as Raleigh Heath, but I ran as as a supporter of Hillary Clinton and um you know which basically did not allow uh, people that are supporting me to think that I would do anything else so i it's I, I think we're in an awkward situation um from all standpoints personally as well as professionally um and uh, the, the if the court uh, had gone the other way uh, yesterday uh, and had freed me up to be an uncommitted delegate um, then I think that, that it changes quite, quite a bit. But at this point, um, I, I feel that I was uh, the people that supported me, not as Raleigh Heath, but as an elector of Hillary Clinton, and that I'm, I'm committed to uh, to vote for her, and I'm proud to do so. But you say that
0: you are sympathetic to Michael Baca's cause and to those of the Hamilton electors. What do you think of those who call this a political stunt?
2: Uh I would I would disagree with that. Um, uh, I think there is a great deal of concern. Um, certainly, the, my constituents that I represent in Boulder, there's a huge concern. I can't go anywhere with this topic that comes up and and what this means for the future. Um, so that's from that standpoint, I am I am deeply concerned. You said that you got emails and people were contacting
0: you both as a state lawmaker and as an elector. Can you tell us some of what you've heard?
2: Well, a large number of those, I would say, the overwhelming majority were that they want us to go to a popular vote and and basically do away with Electoral College completely. Um, As you know, Hillary Clinton won, Secretary Clinton won the popular vote by over, I think it's over 2 million now. Um, This is the second time this has happened in recent history with uh, Al Gore's election. Um, Democrats seem to be on the losing end when it happens, yes. Yeah. And uh, so I, th- I think there's a lot of people that feel we ought to go straight to that. Of course, the whole reason for the Electoral College is uh, the small states wanted a voice. And if we went to a majority vote, the they would lose out to the New Yorks and Californias and the eastern West Coast. Um, and that's that's why the, we have the Electoral College uh, and not a popular vote. So I don't think that would change. And I think the chances of us going to a majority voter are, are, are pretty slim uh, for for that very reason that uh, the small states won when, the, uh, when this was all drafted uh, these many years ago. So I want to get to some of
0: the finer points of how this movement would work. Michael Baca, you want to throw your support behind a compromise Republican candidate. Do you have one?
1: Uh, we don't have anyone out in public uh, that has been publicly supportive yet. Um, we, we do believe that, uh, that there's a reluctant leader out there, much like George Washington, our first president, who didn't want to become the president and was called upon, and people uh, in the only unanimous vote in the Electoral College or what it was at the time... Um, voted for him and called him down from Mount Vernon. Um, And I think there's only one pragmatic approach to doing this, is that Democrats, we must admit defeat, but we still can stop Donald Trump, which is the ultimate goal.
0: It sounds like the philosophy behind supporting an alternative Republican candidate is that you do want to honor what the electoral vote was, just not through Donald Trump. Would you say that's the case?
1: Yes, I I absolutely do believe that. And I, I don't think... I think I disagree a little bit with uh, Senator Heath uh, fully respectfully um, in in that I understand that the small states need to have the power um, as well, but – Wyoming has their electoral votes is worth 362 percent more than a California electoral vote. So there's still this balance of power issue. And we live in a a society um, that is collapsed by geography with technology.
0: Now, I know the name of uh, John Kasich of Ohio has been floated as a potential Republican alternative to Trump, although he, I think, has tweeted that he's really not interested uh so you've got till Monday and you haven't been able to name who the Republican alternative would be. Uh does that just add to the fact that this is um next to impossible if not impossible?
1: Uh it's of course it's difficult. I I I, I if something is going to be easy it's probably not worth doing. Um I I I believe that you know over these next 6 days uh potentially someone could step up. And if not, then it's going to be left uh, up to December 19th. And I, I hope that Republicans uh, across the country, because it's not about the Democrats here, it's about Republicans, 37 Republicans.
0: That is to say you could go into the the day of, of casting the ballot for the electors without a candidate?
1: Yeah, w- without knowing. And then uh-huh. it would be left. Uh, so if 37 uh, fractured and they, they voted for whoever it was, Um, then the top three candidates uh, would then go to the House of Representatives if Donald Trump got below uh, 270 votes.
0: Okay. There's another effort to redirect the Electoral College. A Change.org petition signed by almost 5 million people calls on electors to vote for anyone they want and choose Secretary Clinton because President-elect Trump is, quoting here, unfit to serve. How does your campaign fit in with the idea of of trying to throw the Electoral College for Hillary Clinton, which is another Democratic movement.
1: I I don't think that is at all conceivable to happen. 37 Republicans will not vote for any Democrat, much less Hillary Clinton in such a divisive campaign. The only way this works is if we get these supporters to back a responsible Republican, and that is the way we stop Donald Trump.
2: What do you think about that, Raleigh Heath? Well, I, I I think he's right in terms of uh, not getting any Republicans to to vote for Secretary Clinton. I, th- I think I think that's correct. Um, in terms of um, you, you'd have to get virtually well, you'd have to get all of the Democratic uh, electors to um, to vote for whomever this Republican candidate is, and without anyone knowing, I think that. That is highly unlikely. Um, I'm certainly not going to vote for a pig in the poke and and um, not even have any any idea. And particularly with um, with the, with the court cases, I, I just don't think you're going to get all of the Democratic electors across the country to do it. If if we if we had a candidate and we knew um, what this was all about, and you can obviously have a dialogue around that, but, you know that it becomes. Uh, uh, I still don't think likely, but at least you have something to go on. But hmm. but the unknown, I think, makes it uh, makes it virtually impossible.
0: Michael, a woman named Courtney Beth Keller, who lives in Loveland, reached out to us on Twitter this morning. And uh, she has this question. Why are our electors taking away our state's vote for Hillary Clinton? Our state went blue fight for Hillary. So taking some flack here from the left. What's your response to Courtney? Uh I could
1: vote for Hillary Clinton, and that's not going to do anything to stop Donald Trump. If you believe Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to our to our, the fabric of our republic, um, then get behind what we're doing with the Hamilton electors. It's yes, it's a long shot. It's difficult. I understand. I understand that we are potentially taking away the voices uh, of people. And that is, that is a concern. But we have the Electoral College. And Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. Donald Trump won the Electoral College vote. So we must respect that vote because that is the current law of the land.
0: Briefly, before we go, Raleigh Heath, there's been a movement among electors to see some of the intelligence related to Russia's role in the election. Is that something you'd like to see before you cast your ballot on Monday?
2: Uh, absolutely, um, you know this 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 aspect of this election is is scary, and the things that I've learned that that the intelligence, the Russians actually reached down into some of our counties as well. If you believe and and uh, if if that is credible, and a number of county chairs have talked about that to me, so I think there is a huge concern there. And yes. Um, but I think this has got to come out for the American public, not just for us. But, but uh, the, what this what this could mean down 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 the road. So yes, I think it would be um, very very helpful. Does it change anything? Um, maybe not. But um, I think it I think it it's a huge matter of um, of concern. And yes, I would support it. That is
0: Raleigh Heath, member of the Electoral College from Boulder, and we heard from Michael Baca, who is a Hamilton elector from Denver. Still to come, the man who thought he owned water. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now, one family struggle to maintain their farm and their water in northern Colorado. Tertia Delgen's parents moved from Denver to a farm outside Greeley in their 40s with a romantic vision of what the agrarian life would be like. That was especially true of her dad. But they quickly realized how hard it was, not just the back-breaking work, but things they took for granted, like their water. Delgen's new book is about their 40-year struggle to get and keep enough water for the farm to survive. The book is called The Man Who Thought He Owned Water. And Tertia, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Ryan. Hello.
0: Hi. By way of introduction, you've been active in helping your parents with these water struggles but you never really lived on the farm. You were largely out of the house by the time they bought it. You live in San Diego now, and your book seems to be directed at people like you who come at these issues as outsiders. What lesson do you want them to take away?
3: I would love it if people would realize that the cities and the rural areas are codependent or or depend on each other. And this was illustrated vividly to me through my parents because my mother was very um, Denver-oriented and my father was intent on growing food. And they slowly um, began to uh, coordinate efforts on that, especially after my father passed away. My mother got very much into the um, farm and the water rights and all these kinds of things.
0: And really they'd seen it both as urban dwellers earlier in their lives and then as farm folk later in their lives. I I think it's a perspective that not a lot of people get. Do you think that's true?
3: It's true and how lucky I am to have been exposed to it. And in being exposed to it, I um, at first was just kind of flabbergasted at the things that were going on, people coming onto the farm with guns and diverting water, that kind of thing and and then began uh thinking as i became more aware about the here in san diego about the interconnection between soil and water and uh land productivity about this more strategically and it's not everybody's experience and it i became worried because so few city people understand it yeah and it's fascinating and beautiful and we depend on it for food <laughs>
0: And really a big theme of the book is that many Americans don't understand the lives of farmers and ranchers. You write about a moment when your sister made a comment to you on the subject of drought, something the effect of, farmers use a lot more water than cities. And you sounded like you wanted to pull her hair out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, pull my own hair out, really. Pull Um. my own hair out. I think it's it's true. We've, um, in California and probably in Colorado, too, because of water scarcity, we've We hear things, for instance, an almond takes a gallon of water to grow and we think, well, we shouldn't be eating so many almonds or why are they growing almonds? But we don't think, well, the other nuts might also take a gallon of water to grow or an apple takes 30 gallons of water to grow and all these foods. And then we open the refrigerator and it doesn't occur to us that it comes from somewhere other than the grocery store. And meanwhile, because the cities are developing and they – are using the agricultural water to do so across the West, um, our farm, our cropland is, um, going away and d- diminishing and going away perhaps forever. And that's, um, my big appeal <laughs> here yeah. today.
0: I mean, certainly you write about how much farmland is now developed, you know, suburbs and exurbs, uh, for instance. And, um, I want to say that your parents have both passed away, your mom just last summer, and th- yes. this, this book is in part a touching personal story uh, because your mom didn't want this lifestyle for most of her life. While your dad took care of the farm, she still drove back to Denver for parties and fancy clothes. And I, I gather you're more like her, but you really both came to love farming and farmers. What, what do you think it is that attracts you?
3: It's a tremendously rewarding—my um, exposure to it has been rewarding and also very sensual. And I am, I wrote, as I did, in a desire to reach um, other city people, urban dwellers, because what's happening is that um, we really—the farmers are so few, and they're easily— um, Disenfranchised politically and culturally, and so by trying to write, uh, this mom, my my mother and my father provided a lens through which to view this um, incredible thing, and so I'm hoping to seduce <laughs> other people like this. I probably already said that, mm. but.
0: Well, I, I think it's it's also true that this book is really about eroding the divide we perceive between urban and rural. And I, I just love the line in your book, cities need food as badly as farmers do. Water actually flows into cities in the form of food. Just how important that idea is, because often in the water debate, it's said, well, f- agriculture uses most of the water. And and that really frustrates you when you hear that. It's sort of like what your sister told you. Um, and what we really have to do... Well, it's
3: not do... so much frustration yeah. as feeling... Um, uh, critically the need to share the information. So it's not frustration with, this, with urban dwellers. It's a matter of information. That's why it's so um, fortunate that I'm on the show. And also... It shows the way Colorado matters because Colorado water law, Colorado water administration, Colorado, the water that originates in Colorado is um, the key to the West. And so Colorado's in the vanguard in terms of thinking about these topics.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and author Tersha Delgins with me. Her new book is called The Man who, uh, who Thought He Owned Water, Thought He Did, On the Brink with American Farm Cities and Food. And the man in question is actually her father, who moved from Denver to a farm he bought with his family near Greeley. The farm is at Big Bend Station, the giant bend in the South Platte River, north of Denver. And uh, the river actually flows north, so that's downstream of Denver. Um, Your parents bought three adjacent farms, combined them in the 1970s. The properties came with water rights. But when did your parents realize that water was actually going to be an issue for them? Despite owning it,
3: well, it was always an issue because every day the, the food was being cultivated, at the farmer getting ready to be cultivated or being harvested, and so the the water and the tie also to wildlife that depends on the water and on the crops and on the river was an everyday thing, or is an everyday thing there, and so it and it was very important to my father to. Um, acquire abundant water rights because he could see the West developing mm-hmm. and he knew that it would be, become competitive. So um, in 2006, however, the, the our groundwater rights were curtailed, not just ours, but um, groundwater on 100,000 acres in northeastern Colorado, and that's a lot of land put out of productivity. Mm. <laughs> so we um, regrouped in order to grow different crops and to um, revitalize the land in different ways after that since then.
0: And so the the pressure of water, the awareness of water was really there from day one. And Over the years, farmers and ranchers have competed with each other for water rights. More recently, they're competing with cities on the front range. Cities can buy water rights from farmers and ranchers who often have priority when it comes to how much water they can take out of rivers like the South Platte. And cities have done this quite significantly. Were your parents ever approached by a city to sell their water rights? Did you feel that pressure?
3: It's um, what happens or what is happening now is that the municipalities are going after the ditch rights, and one of our uh, water rights is in a mutual ditch where uh, numerous farmers um, are shareholders, and that ditch has been um, taken over quite a bit by Aurora and also by United uh, Water and Sanitation, which serves uh, parts of Centennial and uh, I think Arapahoe County, but what happens is then that there's water it puts more it puts more pressure or more use on the infrastructure and so the farmers become beleaguered by not being able to you know they're already just trying to farm and now they have they have these huge legal fees to protect the water and maintenance fees to um, keep the ditch up.
0: Hmm. And that's just another dimension of the pressure. In its new water plan the state says we understand that drying out farms isn't good. We want farmers and cities to work together to fallow fields every other year or every third year. So something less permanent than just selling the water rights and leaving the farm. Is that middle ground a solution that works?
3: Um, if you want um, one third of the food... <laughs> And you, the soil drier, and the and the wildlife confused and moving elsewhere, or not being as abundant. All those things. It's it's a we don't think of the West as being finite, or of Colorado as being finite. But you add more people, and more and more and more people, and you can, as is obvious, because it's flourished, um, go so far with it. But Because of the climate, because of the floods and the environment and the pollution and everything, it seems to me at least that we've reached a place where we should think more carefully about um, perpetual growth, perpetually adding people. The Colorado Water Plan was built for twice the population coming in before 2050. Is that really a good idea?
0: Hmm. So you actually don't think that notion of following is all that practical?
3: I think it's the city's way of taking the water from the farmers and, and talking about sharing. Well, the farmers didn't have to share before they were growing food. They share by creating food. That's sharing. And it's a population that doesn't go on vacations. They're doing it year-round. They're hard, really hardworking people.
0: The farm remains in your family. And like other farms, it has made moves to conserve water, which you've hinted at you talked about mm-hmm. uh, in this book a lot, the importance of growing food locally. Uh, but your dad continued to grow c- crops like corn that were used for industrial feed for animals. And uh, I was interested to read that you and he disagreed about that. D- did he change your well, mind at all?
3: <laughs> I'm a Southern Californian and <laughs> a city person. So yes, there are arguments. And it, it's, inter- it's really interesting because the prairies... Um, are suited to grass and uh, grains and corn can grow more easily in the wind and the kind of weather patterns that are there. So it's um, also culturally, um, they're up near Greeley, very geared towards industrial farming and there um, isn't a big supply of labor for farm labor Um so it's in transportation and markets and everything as the book um, describes have changed greatly since the seventies in ways that most city people aren't aware of. And then when I was so researching it, I was like, "Oh, this is very worrisome, even more worrisome than I thought." Hmm. But it's really it's also really interesting because we can we can help change that with our shopping and our eating and our political engagement and agriculture um, issues
0: you you talked about a curtailment in 2006 that's when the state limited how much well water the family mm-hmm. could could take and this really came as a surprise um to wrap up did your family ever think let's get out of this business it's just it's just too hard too capricious
3: no they didn't think that my parents didn't think that that's um they, they my father thought mom would move away from the farm after He passed away, and she she wouldn't budge. She started meeting people and going to meetings, and she was, because he was the great-grandson of a former governor who was a big irrigator, Ben Eaton, she became a... um, uh, sort of representing that spirit of um, hard work and holding to the land.
0: Which, as you write, is really true of a lot of folks um in colorado's farmlands thanks so much for being with us
3: thank you very much thank you
0: (laughs) tersha delgin wrote the man who thought he owned water it's about her family's farm on denver's front range you can read an excerpt at cprnews.org and we'll be right back with colorado matters it's colorado matters from cpr news i'm ryan warner an online school responds to my interview about a scathing investigation in Loud and Clear, our regular feedback segment. The other day, I spoke with Education Week reporter Ben Harold. He wrote a story about Colorado's largest online school, Goal Academy, which serves about 4,000 students, grades 9 through 12. Harold and his colleagues got a hold of internal data that showed in a typical week, about half of students weren't logging into the school's educational software. The report also highlighted financial mismanagement by the school's founder and former head, Ron Kroll, who stepped down. Goal Academy reached out after the interview to say it didn't reflect more recent strides. Rich Mestis is chief academic officer.
1: We
4: had a board that took immediate and swift action when they became aware of some of the
1: concerns and issues that arose over the past uh, year.
0: Mestis points to the state's 2016 performance review of Goal, which was just released. Academic achievement has gone up four percentage points. Academic growth jumped eight. While Mestis is concerned about kids logging on and the content they master, he also says because the school serves a high-risk population, success must be measured in a variety of ways. A lot of time that we spend with our students isn't necessarily captured inside of the digital curriculum, which is
4: more content-based, but actually outside of the curriculum, where we're working with our students um, to provide wraparound services, to identify needs that exist outside of academics, to help get them to a place where they can be ready to learn.
0: Keep your feedback coming. The show is a two-way street. At Colorado Matters on Twitter, CPR News on Facebook, or when you're at CPRNews.org, comment beneath individual articles or click Contact at the top of the page. The new Star Wars movie, Rogue One, opens Thursday. The power that we are dealing with here is immeasurable. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? Star Wars was the brainchild of George Lucas, and Colorado filmmaker Alexander Philippe is about as close as you can get to a Lucas scholar. He made a documentary called The People vs. George Lucas. It's about how fans turned on the iconic director. I spoke to Philippe earlier this year about some of the films that inspired Lucas, like the 1930s sci fi serials Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon.
4: You're losing, Your Majesty. Better make terms while
0: you can.
5: If I lose, you and your friends will never live to see it. Take the prisoners at once to the tunnel of terror.
0: The Tunnel of Terror. <laughs> you call these space operas. What's, That's right. What is a space opera, and how did they inspire Lucas? Well, essentially, you know, I think the best way to look
4: at a space opera, it's melodrama in space, you know, with a little bit of, uh, you know, swashbuckling action-adventure sort of mixed in. So it's not, it's not really what you would consider
0: science fiction. You know? they, get, they get facts wrong. For instance, you yes. point out that... Uh, you would not hear the sound of a spacecraft in right. space, and yet, of course, that's a sound that is often playing in the background of these TV shows and movies. There
4: you go, and you know, and that's not—that's obviously not the point of you know of a space opera. The, the whole point is to just uh, you know provide this amazing sort of fun action adventure for the whole family.
0: All right, so those were absolutely those television series were absolutely a. An inspiration to George Lucas. Another film that inspired Lucas was from 1958, called Hidden Fortress, by the Japanese director Akira Kurosawa. (laughs) Clearly, someone is in distress there. Yes. Lucas admired Kurosawa's camera techniques. That shows up in Star Wars. Uh, More specifically, that film we heard a clip from, Hidden Fortress, was a huge inspiration, I guess, for the original trilogy. Are there a lot of similarities? There's actually a lot.
4: Um, You know, the the sort of the most striking one is the uh, you know you you get to experience a story from the point of view of the two sort of lowliest characters who uh, will eventually become C three PO and R two D two in you know in in the Star Wars movie. Uh, But there's actually numerous. Influences also uh, that you've seen the early versions of the screenplay of Star Wars, which at the time was called the Star Wars
0: the Star Wars the okay. Star
4: wars and uh, but we'll certainly be talking about this during the series, yeah
0: I understand that the word Jedi comes from a Japanese term
4: yeah Jidai geki exactly which is uh, which is essentially the a genre of uh, of samurai sort of filmmaking yeah. yeah I see and
0: is that the type of film that Kurosawa would have made or that's just a different
4: genre. Yeah, no, he did. He did some of them. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, we can talk for ages about, you know, George Lucas sort of borrowing phrases. I mean, even the force the, the, the you know, comes from uh, a very obscure uh, Canadian short film, uh, 2187, uh, which, uh, you know, uh Came out in the late sixties, so he's been borrowing a lot from a lot of different sources. And
0: the the force in that film was the same as the force in the Star Wars. No,
4: it's just passingly mentioned. It's actually it's, a, it's an experimental Canadian uh, short film, uh, and it's just a phrase
0: that uh, George Lucas kind of latched onto. Huh. Yeah. Then there is THX one one three eight. This is Lucas's nineteen seventy one debut feature film. It's set in the future in a dystopian society. People have Numbers instead of names, mm-hmm. human emotions and free will are illegal, and they're subdued by medication. And then a man and woman stop taking their drugs. they have sex, which isn't frowned upon, and they end up on the run from authorities.
2: All Earth Council, in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The biochemical forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era.
0: Now, I think if you asked 10 people about THX 1138, nine of them wouldn't recognize it necessarily. That was initially, though, supposed to be a multi-picture deal for Warner Brothers. Correct. Uh, But studio executives pulled back after watching the completed film, not what you want to hear afterwards. Why did they step back?
4: Uh, You know, actually, I do not know that.
0: No. 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 What I what don't. do you what do you think when you see THX 1138? Well,
4: you know, it's uh to me THX is a really interesting movie to look at because it's uh, it's an it's an early sort of pure version of what George Lucas really was about as a, you know, as as a filmmaker. I mean, I think he was always interested in experiment experimentation, uh not really particularly interested in stories, which It's so interesting to me that he became this guy who gave us the myth of our generation. And, of course, Joseph Campbell is really responsible for that. But, you know, when you start looking at the prequel trilogy, uh, I think, uh, to me, this is kind of Lucas going back to his roots, to his origins, and, you know, perhaps not being so much interested in the story,
0: but more interested in the form. I wonder if that's why it didn't fly with studio executives. Well, there's that. Now, you mentioned Joseph Campbell. Say more about that.
4: Well, I mean, Joseph Campbell obviously really saw patterns in storytelling from, you know, tales, uh, you know, global tales, you know, from around the world, and saw that there were certain uh, elements of the stories that would, repeat themselves across cultures, you know, cultures that back in the day were not even aware of each other's existence. That there were so,
0: universal themes. Yeah.
4: Exactly. Universal themes, universal ideas, universal um, archetypes. Um, and so that's, you know, something you can see in his book, The, the Hero of a Thousand Faces. Um, and he, you know, uh, obviously trained in a way George Lucas um and it's really interesting to look at the evolution of Star Wars from the early drafts of the screenplay to what it eventually became.
0: Why do you think it has become such a hit?
4: Well, you know, it's uh Star Wars was, as I said, you know, the myth for certainly my generation. You know, we were raised with that. But there was I think the stroke of genius from George was uh giving us the toys. Uh this, okay. the, you the know, toys
0: associated with the film? Absolutely. Had that just not been tried before?
4: Well, not to that extent. I think George was a real sort of visionary in terms of making sure that every character, every spaceship, every creature in his universe was going to be available. And so when you're, you know, eight years old or six years old and you've just seen Star Wars and you have to wait – you know, now two or three years for the next installment, which is like basically half of your life. (laughs) Um, So what you do, you go home and you start playing with the toys and you start speculating and thinking about, you know, what that next episode is going to be like. And so what it does is it essentially made us a play in George's Sandbox from a very early age. And so it created that very sort of tactile, Hmm. uh, very tangible relationship with the universe.
0: I loved my R2-D2 figure. Oh, my goodness, I was inseparable. (laughs) Uh, One more film that Lucas drew inspiration from is called Metropolis. It's a 1927 German science fiction silent film. This picture has dystopian themes similar to Star Wars. And I understand it also influenced how Star Wars showed the aesthetics of a robot.
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you look at the poster of Metropolis, you'll see that you know iconic robot which inspired Rolf McQuarrie to create uh at least an early version of C3PO I mean there's a very clear sort of inspiration there but, uh, you know, it's also this, this notion that, you know, you've got people living in this kind of city under the city who are, you know, the, the hands, so to speak, and then the, the upper class are the mind. And the whole idea of metropolis, which I think is really beautiful, is that you need this kind of mediator bec- between the hands and, and, you know, and the mind, which is the heart. Um, and, you know, that, you know, to me, you extrapolate that to Star Wars, and that's the force, you know, the force huh. sort of binds the galaxy and binds the universe together.
0: And the moment you integrate the heart in the story, it has to be about storytelling. It can't just be about concept. Abs-
4: absolutely. In a way. Absolutely.
0: Okay. You have been very kind by saying that George Lucas borrowed and was <laughs> inspired by yeah. and looked to. Is he a thief? George Lucas is is obviously
4: fascinates me. I've been fascinated with him for, for a long time. And you can go around and around and you can go back and forth on this um, there's actually something that I will show during the series that uh, to me is more evidence for him being a thief and that is when you look at the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark okay. uh, and then you compare that with an early Scrooge comic which is literally panel for panel the exact sequence from, the exact opening sequence from Raiders of the Lost Ark including you know the Idol and the Boulder and, and all that stuff um, it's incredible to me that you would just take that and turn it into a film. And what is the comic?
0: You know, Scrooge McDuck.
4: The, uh... Scrooge
0: McDuck. Yes. I Sorry. See. Uh, thanks so much for being with of us. Of course. Alexander Philippe is a Denver filmmaker. Find excerpts from the films we talked about at CPRnews.org. Now, the musical score for Star Wars also stands on the shoulders of giants, as we're going to hear now from hosted CPR Classical, Carla Walker. Hi, Carla. Hi, Ryan. And it all, of course, starts with this. (music)
5: The main theme from the original Star Wars, all the soundtracks for all seven Star Wars movies were written by John Williams. And Ryan, he has continued to build on these original themes and create new ones. But when you listen to the soundtracks, especially from the first three movies, they are full of references to classical pieces. And they have provided all sorts of fun for people like me, music geeks like me, who try to find their classical cousins. So the theme that we just heard, that original theme to Star Wars, it is seared into our brains, right? But if you are a movie buff from the 30s and 40s, you might remember a movie called King's Row, which sounds quite similar.
0: Yeah, that's uncanny, isn't it?
5: It's similar. It's not note for note, but it's very, very similar in its essence. And that was written by the great film score composer Eric Kornbold.
0: Why would John Williams do this?
5: You know, basically he was asked to. Um, George Lucas hired John Williams on the advice of his friend Steven Spielberg right after Spielberg and Williams had made Jaws. And Lucas told Williams, he said, Star Wars is an old-fashioned movie and I want a big, grand orchestral score – Like Korngold used to write for these big swashbuckling movies like Robin Hood or Seahawk, these big movies from the 30s and 40s. And that's the sound that he wanted. In fact, Lucas, when he was writing Star Wars, he was listening to classical music and he put together a dummy score with these pieces all in order. So when he and Williams sat down, he played the pieces for Williams and he said, this is what I want. Can you give me this?
0: He was very specific. And how is that not plagiarizing someone else's work?
5: Well, in classical music, Ryan, there is a long tradition of composers borrowing from each other. You know, the idea of copyright didn't exist for musicians basically until about the 1920s. So many people borrowed from other composers. Brahms, Mahler, all borrowed from Beethoven. So – Pieces that are written after about 1923 are protected by copyright, and some of the pieces that Williams used are before then, but some of them come after the copyright laws as well. But as far as I know, if anyone has ever – any of these estates of these composers, uh, if they've sued John Williams, it's never been reported on. But I want to make clear that while Williams is standing on the shoulders of giants, he is a giant – Himself, he he took these themes, and they're very small. They're snippets, and then he built them into something completely different.
0: Why don't we hear another example?
5: Sure, this is from uh, another recognizable movie, *The Empire Strikes Back*.
0: Nothing good can happen when that theme is playing.
5: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It says war, doesn't it? it Those does. drums. Well, it's no coincidence that it sounds a little like Mars, the bringer of war from the planets by Gustav Holst. Very menacing, right?
0: It is indeed.
5: (laughs) Sounds very similar, but it's also this Darth Vader theme, so it's infused with that, but it's also infused with what's called the Funeral March from a Chopin piano sonata.
0: It a bit slower, but if you if yeah. you speed that up, you basically have that theme exactly from Darth Vader exactly. I think it's safe to say that Star Wars would not be what it is, what it was without the music.
5: Absolutely, there's this great video that you can Google, and it's the scene from the throne room in the in the final uh, the final scene of the first movie where uh, Han and Chewbacca and Luke Skywalker are walking down the center aisle to get their award from Princess Leia. But the video is without the music. So it's just <laughs> so it's just them walking and their facial expressions. And it's so incredibly cheesy. So you know, John Williams is a giant in his own right.
0: Thanks, Carla, for being with us. Thank you. That is Carla Walker, host at CPR Classical, and that is our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.